your moving feasts in there are your interest rate that you need to monitor, your LVR around the value of your asset, and then ensuring that your monthly repayments of principal and interest are going to ensure that you remain within your LVR and you're satisfying your interest requirements. So those three are actually linked together. You're listening to Australia's Tax News Podcast, Tax Talks, the podcast for Australian tax professionals. Welcome to episode 223 of Tax Talks. This is Heide Robson and thank you to Class for sponsoring this episode. As you know, an SMSF can borrow money, but only through an LRBA for a single acquirable asset. And this asset, or to be more specific, the income and expenses generated by this asset are only considered to be at arm's length if the LRBA is at arm's length. Now, arm's length is a fuzzy term. What I consider as arm's length might not be what you or the ATO considers as arm's length. And so to make it easier and more clean cut, The ATO has issued safe harbour rules. If you stick to these rules for property or listed securities, you can be sure that the LRBA is considered to be at arm's length, so you won't go through a nasty surprise. And it is these safe harbour rules we will talk about today. Kathy Evans is a partner at the Findex Albury office and leads its superannuation specialist division. So perfect to ask about the LRBA safe harbour rules. When you meet with clients, do you find the LRBA safe harbour provisions cause confusion? Oh, I'm not sure confusion would be the word I'd use. I think LRBA is generally a complicated area and people, I don't think, really understand how they work to the full detail. I think the safe harbour provisions are becoming more relevant because there's a lot more people now looking to borrow from related parties, which is where your safe harbour provisions come in, versus from a you know the standard bank. And that's a lot of that's around because a lot of the banks are either not doing LRBAs or it's really, really difficult to get finance even if they are doing them. And quite expensive. Absolutely. And, and, and so if you can get an LRBA with a bank, yeah, it is incredibly expensive. It, well, it's expensive, it's complicated, it's costly to set up because you have to put the structure in place and the bank's costs are often quite high. Interest rates tend to be higher than your standard rates. And, yeah, as I said earlier, a lot of the major banks are now out of the game, particularly post the Royal Commission, and... There's, you know, non-standard banks, you might call them, that are doing them. And we've had a few happen in the last sort of 12 or 18 months, but they're not easy. And so then the other path people look down is say, okay, well, it might be easier for me to borrow the money in one of my other entities from the bank and then on lend it to my super fund. Or in some occasions... Oh, yeah, that's a good that, idea. Well, and that's what the safe harbour provisions are around. And in other cases, they might actually have the money in another entity outside of super. Like can't, a bucket company? Yeah, or a trust or even in their own name. And they can't put it into super because they're limited by contribution rules and everything else. So they then lend it into the SMSF. So that's where your related party lending happens and then... Overlaying that is the safe harbour provisions, which is, you know, where you say if you tick all the boxes in these safe harbour provisions, then the ATO is basically guaranteeing that you will be fine on a review. 
if you don't tick the boxes, they're not saying it's a problem. They're just saying you're not guaranteed that it's okay if there's a review. So I think that's a really critical point is some people look at it and go, oh, if I don't meet the safe harbour provisions, I'm, I'm done type thing. But, yeah, the the ATO is saying just because you don't meet the safe harbour provisions doesn't mean that you'll have a problem from an arm's length perspective. It just means that you might have to come up with a bit more substantiation or documentation to confirm that, you know, why you've done it that way and why you haven't met the safe harbour provisions. How often do you have clients not going for the safe harbour provisions? Is it very rare or do you see it yeah, once it, in a while? You see it once in a while because the other thing is the safe harbour provisions only apply if the asset that you're purchasing is property or listed shares. So if you're investing in another, and we had one recently where the client was looking at purchasing units in an unlisted unit trust. So they can't be covered by the safe harbour provisions because the safe harbour, the ruling that applies to the safe harbour provisions specifically only applies, as I said, to property and, and listed shares. So even if they wanted to be covered, they couldn't be. In that case, you know, we would say to our clients, at least be aware of what the safe harbour provisions are and even on that borrowing against unlisted units if you can satisfy or show that you satisfy all those requirements, then you've got a fairly good argument or conversation to have with the tax office if they come and review your, your situation to say, well, I can't guarantee it because I don't fit under your definitions, but I've ticked all the requirements, so I'm showing that I'm genuinely trying to fit in with the, the arm's length rules. So there are basically three scenarios where borrowing into an SMSF can happen. And only for one of these scenarios, the LRBA safe harbour rules apply. The first one is borrowing from a bank, and then you don't need the safe harbour rules. Correct. The second one is borrowing for any assets that are not property or listed shares, yep. and then you don't need the safe harbour rules because they don't apply. Well, yeah, that you can't use them. Exactly. Yep, yep. And then the third one is you borrow from a non-bank for property or shares, and then the safe harbour routes are available. For they you. are available for to use. It's And it's to do with where you are dealing with a related party. So if you were borrowing from an unrelated party, we'd have to look at that circumstance separately. But, yeah, the, the safe harbour provisions are very much around saying I'm borrowing from a related party for property or listed shares so if I can tick the seven key areas of the safe harbour rules, the ATO is saying, right, you're fine. Yeah. And with listed shares, it doesn't have to be ASX. It just has to be some public exchange somewhere in the world. That so is it my could understanding. Be China, it yeah, could be the yeah, US. It just has to be listed on an exchange. And I think we only had the safe harbour rules since 2016 when PCG 2016-5 came out. Yes. Do you remember life? before the safe harbour rules? A little bit. Uh, seems like a long time ago now. It's actually not that far away. But, yeah, they, they're prior to the, the safe harbour rules. I mean, I guess the borrowing originally came in back in around about 2007 where there was the instalment warrant um, rules. And, and a lot of that came around, you know, the examples where you Telstra shares where you had the two instalments. So, in effect, they were sort of unintentionally a borrowing that self-managed super funds had. And so the legislation was brought in then, um, which has since been repealed. And then we sort of flowed through to some ATO ID releases and guidance. And, you know, there were conversations through the, the early 2010s where they were, you know, there were 
discussions at the NTLG and they released some IDs, as I said, and then I think they obviously got to a point and said in 2016 we need to provide some more specific guidance here. And the good thing about the PCG 2016-5 is it's pretty clear. It's quite, you know, you can follow it and say, yeah, that makes sense to me. You know, that's got to be my repayment arrangements. That's got to be my LVR arrangement, my interest rate, my term. Like you can actually go through and tick off against the seven steps and it then makes it easier to have conversations with your clients to say, well, these are the requirements. If you if we meet these requirements, it gives us some confidence then in what we have in place. And I think a key thing to ensure you're talking to your clients about is that these are ongoing requirements. You don't just meet them at the start of the loan and say, oh, right, we're fine. You've actually got to meet them on an ongoing basis and that's, you know, where it's important to be having those regular conversations with your clients and making sure that they're following the criteria that's been put in place. Shall we go through what the safe harbour rules actually yep. say? So there are seven safe harbour rules. Yes. And they distinguish between real property and listed shares. Correct. I mean, some criteria are different. Some criteria are exactly the same. Yep. Yep. So there's basically, yeah, your seven key areas is, is the interest rate, the term of the loan. So how long is the loan? What's your maximum LVR or loan to value ratio that, that you can have? So what's the maximum amount you're allowed to borrow effectively? What security is required for the loan against the asset? What's the rule, rulings around personal guarantees? Your nature and frequency of your repayments. In other words, you know, can it be just interest? Does it have to be principal and interest? Those types of things. And then the final piece is the actual documentation of the loan agreement. And, and that one's an easy one. It has to be in writing. So it's always, and it's no different in any of these arm's length pieces that we look at, is you have to take your yourself hat off and sit there and say, if I was dealing with Joe Blow down the road, what arrangements would I put in place? You can't deal any differently with yourself or your related parties when it involves your SMSF, which, you know, probably makes some sense, I guess. LRBA, safe harbour rule number one, interest rates. So if we start with the interest rate, it's the RBA indicator rates for banks providing standard variable housing loans for investors. Yeah, it's a bit of a mouthful, isn't it? (laughs) So is that easy to look up? And I can imagine that changes all the time. Absolutely it does. But then it's no different if you go and borrow from a bank, the interest rate changes. And if you're on a variable rate, you're in, your rate changes through the period of your loan. So, yes, that the fact that it's RBA indicator rates, that's fairly accessible. So you can go and do your research. And that's where I said before it's important that you're continually monitoring those because if those if you're on a variable rate loan and those rates change, you need to make sure you adjust your calculations mm. in accordance with that. So how often do they change? Oh, to be do honest, they, I don't know that. Do they change in line? Do they change whenever the um, Reserve Bank of Australia changes? I, I would assume rates, so. Because, or do they change more frequently? Oh, no, I would think it would be around the, the Reserve Bank because it's it's a, your RBA indicator rates, so therefore it's going to be driven by the RBA. But... Look, yeah. I'll be honest, since I haven't looked into that in detail. So, yeah. Yeah. but so that means it wouldn't change that often. It no, might change it's not going to change every once, second day. But, yeah, exactly. It might but, change once a year because otherwise, I was thinking, how on earth do you calculate this correct. with an Excel spreadsheet? Yeah, yeah. But if it if it just changes whenever the RBA changes yeah. the official, and, and there's a lot of good loan calculator software around that you could go in and say, right, I'm 
you know, updating the interest rate or whatever other, if there's other aspects of your loan that change. But, yeah, it's not going to change on a regular basis, but, again, you need yeah. to monitor it. So you have to be spot on with the interest rate. You have to calculate yes, it. you need to make sure that you, you can show that you've used that guidance there around the RBA indicator rate. And when in regard to the listed securities, they apply the same rules, but it's plus 2%. Yes, and why is that? Well, basically, I guess it's around the, the liquidity and the security of the asset So, is and, it and the risk the banks, of the asset. Is it because the banks usually would charge a higher interest rate for I, I would assume securities? so. Well, you, listed securities market is you know, potentially more volatile, and I say potentially, I'm not an expert in the market, than you know, property. So you know, we read all the time about what the share market does. And there's been extreme cases of you know, crashes and whatnot. So there's a higher risk. They would be seen as a higher risk asset. That's normally what drives higher interest is mm. the higher risk with, with mm. the investment that you're going into. So, yeah, my assumption of the logic behind that is that listed securities are seen as a higher risk than real property. If you went to the bank to borrow against the two, I am guessing they would give you two different rates. Yes. And that that's, would, I assume, be the background for that one. LRBA Safe Harbour Rule number two, term of loan. Term of loan. Yep. So for real property, the term of the loan, the guidance they give is is 15 years for the original loan. Um, You can refinance. We probably won't go into that detail today. But if you do refinance, the term of your new loan is reduced by what you've used on the original one. So effectively 15 years. And you don't have to do 15 years. You can go shorter, but it's just the maximum term. You just can't go longer. longer. Correct. And then in regard to that, that's for your property and for listed securities, it's seven years and with the same rules if you refinance. And again, the logic of that is shares would probably be seen to be a, a, a more shorter term type piece. They're more easily turned over and, and you know, bought and sold than property. Um, so they're a more liquid asset. So that means for that particular asset, that's it. For that particular asset, you can take a loan of 15 years, but once the 15 years are up, that's it. You can then tell, take out another LRBA for a different asset in the SMSF, but for that particular asset, you can't come back and do another loan. With, with that particular asset and that loan, that's right. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And then for listed securities, the term is seven the, the years. Seven years, yeah. But the same scenario that if you refinance it, you, you go back and say, what have I already used of that term in the original loan? Yep. And that's probably trying to reflect what a bank would do. A bank Again, probably yeah, would, would go up to so. 15 years on property. It would probably yep. go up to seven years on yep. listed securities. Yep. Yeah, and you would have to assume that when this ruling was brought out that you know, there was a lot of research done around, well, what actually happens in this market with the banks? And so that's where that guidance would come from. And you can see that when you go into the next um, one of the rules, which is the loan-to-value ratio. LRBA Safe Harbour Rule number three, loan-to-value ratio. The loan-to-value ratio um, where, you know, for property it's 70%. Well, that you know, that would feel like that's a fairly standard type of approach on a property loan that they'll they'll lend you up to 70% of the value of the property. Again, that needs to be continually monitored. The important thing there is, you know, what is the value of the asset, underlying asset, doing during the period of the loan? So as long as it continues to increase in value, then you're probably not going to have any issues with your LVR. But what happens if the property value drops or 
you're in the shares the and share the share market, market drops. And so, you know, the, the LVR for your listed securities is 50%. If you sort of go right to the maximum 50 and then there's a drop in the market, you're over your 50, so you're, you're now outside your safe harbour rules. So that can be, things can happen and and you could potentially fall outside the rules unintentionally on that sort of mm. an example. So that's why it's really important to know how close to the edge are we and what are the potential changes that could cause us a concern. Let's say LVR is 50%, share market crashes, we are outside of our LVR. What happens? Wow. Does it then mean that if the share price then comes back up, because we broke the LVR rule at some stage, that asset is forever Oh, look, or you'd have temporary to, trespassing. I, I think you um, just fix it as soon as you can would be my starting yeah. point. So you say, you know, that's where... fixing is really difficult because you can't, you're can't. you limited in the contributions you can bring in. But you might have to share, sell some of the asset or something. Oh, like yes. you need to look at your options as to what you can do. But, you know, it's no different than other areas of superannuation and I guess tax law generally. You know, at times you might say, oh, I've, I've inadvertently gone outside that particular rule. Well, generally the approach is from the ATO and, and from us as advisors is, well, step one is let's understand what's happened. Step two is what can we do to fix it? You don't come out with a baseball bat and, you know, fix it. You, you don't crack, crack a walnut with a with a baseball bat type thing. So the starting point for me anyway would be to say, well, if that happens, so be aware, monitor, oh, hang on, the values dropped okay what do we need to do to fix it what are our options here to get us back inside the safe harbor rules and okay, then so so it's not a dead drop cliff that once you slip outside of the lvr that forever from now on that that asset is no longer at no no, no. Length. it's more no, no, that's not it, what i'm saying what i'm saying is step one would be to Let's, let's identify the issue and fix it. Then the next step would be, right, we now need to be talking to the auditor and maybe even the tax office and saying, you know, is this, we've fixed it, is that okay or is that a problem now that we have to have a bigger fix for? Okay. So I, I haven't dealt with it. So I'm, it's not actually something I'm experienced with in saying, oh, I actually had that problem and this is what we did to I fix see. it. Okay. But I'm just taking a general approach of what we do when people make inadvertent mistakes said in super it can be in other areas of tax as well is the general piece is let's try to fix the problem and then let's work out what the consequences, consequences might be yeah but don't don't go to the consequences first and say oh this thing's done you know we've, the fund's non-complying now or whatever it might be lrba safe harbor rule number four security Security. Yes. So normal, you know, you think about a normal loan, the bank would normally want security over, they tend to like bricks and mortar security. So in regard to property, they would want a registered mortgage. And because of the way limited recourse borrowing rules work generally, they can only take a registered mortgage over the actual property that is the subject of the loan. Differently than if you, say, borrow to buy your own home, they would take security over your own home. They may take security over other assets. In a limited recourse borrowing arrangement, they can't do that. So similarly, if it's a related party, then this, the mortgage would be over the property that you're actually lending the money for. And you go back, so you know that, that should be sufficient on the basis that you've stuck within your 70% LVR to give the, the lender comfort that 
you know, if something was to happen, they've got that security to have their loan repaid. If you think back over the past few years, all the LRBAs you've done, are most LRBAs you do with respect to real property? And it's a lot more rare to see LRBAs for listed securities, or is it more 50-50 and... I've never seen one for listed securities, to okay. be honest so with you. So it's quite common for property, but... Yeah. Yeah, and property, commercial property, residential property, those types of things is what I would have seen. I don't think I've seen anything outside that. I mentioned before that we had one where the client was looking at potentially doing it to buy unlisted units in a unit trust. That ended up proving to be just too difficult and problematic, so that didn't proceed. So I've actually never seen one done for anything but property. If you did an LRBA for a listed security, would the registered charge or similar security, would that usually be an entry in the PPSR, in the Personal Property Securities Security Register? To be honest, I don't know because I've mm. never experienced it. Yeah. yeah, I'm sure there'd be a process and maybe that's that's part of it because, again, you have to give the lender the security that if something is not happening with the repayments on the loan, they have an, an asset they can go and make a claim on. And, you yeah, know, so... If I had that circumstance with a client, then I'd yeah, go and research as to what is that position and, and I'm sure there'd be something there that the banks would have done. LRBA Safe Harbour Rule number 5, Personal Guarantee. Personal Guarantee, since it's not required, I'm surprised they even listed it as a Safe Harbour Rule. Yeah, obviously it's something that comes up and I know, again, on the LRBAs that I have seen through banks and, and other financiers, often they will require personal guarantees. The banks. The banks. And you don't need that for an LBA. And it's obviously saying, well, it's not required to be in place for a safe harbour. Interestingly, it doesn't say you can't do them, but it's saying they're not required. So it's just, I guess, ticking off that note. LRBA safe harbour rule number six, nature and frequency of repayments. Nature and frequency of repayments. Yep. Monthly. Well, yeah, monthly and the other key one is it's principal and interest. So you can't choose to do an interest-only repayment, for example, or even principal-only or whatever. It has to be monthly repayments and it has to be calculated on a principal and interest basis. So, again, you need to have a, a good loan calculator that says we've borrowed X, it's at this percentage, it's over 15 years, what's the monthly repayment? And then the key thing there is that the payment is actually set up that it happens. So out of the fund every month, the money goes out to the lender to repay it. Not 12 months worth of payments once a year, monthly. So actually follow the criteria that's set. Is that often an issue? Because I can imagine it is that the LRBA is in place, put aside, is in a drawer, you don't think about it. And then at the very end, is, oh look, it's a it's a possible. I haven't seen it because again, most of the ones I've done, I've only seen, I think maybe two related party LRBAs, and both of those we've worked closely within the safe harbour rules, so we have ensured that they have done that. The other ones I've seen are LRBAs with the bank, so they're going to make you pay it every month. Yeah. So mm -hmm. no, I haven't seen any where they haven't. Do you know if it. it's enough to just book a receivable or to book a payable? Oh, no, I think it needs to be paid. The cash has to. Particularly, I think it's just important to understand when you're dealing with non-arm's length parties, so related parties, you almost have to get go that extra step to ensure that you are 
doing it commercially and following the appropriate rules. So if you're booking a payable, then you wouldn't do that if that was the bank. So don't do it if you're dealing with your related party. So try to keep it as simple as possible and you know, set it up as a regular automatic transaction in your bank account. Then it can't be forgotten. You know, set it up as a direct transfer every month from the Superfund bank account to the lender's bank account. That's the amount. Have your loan calculator. If that amount needs to move, then make sure you change that, etc. LRBA safe harbour rule number seven, written loan agreement. And then the last rule is loan agreements. Yeah. So the key one here is is documented and getting the documentation right. And this applies as much to bank-related LRBAs as it does to related party. Is The critical part is, is setting them up correctly, so getting the right structure in place. Documentation is correct. Then when you have loan agreements like this, that they are well-documented. So we utilise independent solicitor to do all of our LRBAs. Depending on which bank we're dealing with, they often have their own solicitors that they will want to review documentation and sign off on. It's, it's critical because if you don't get your documentation right, A, you might have a safe harbour issue, B, you could have a stamp duty issue at the other end when the loan's repaid if you haven't set your paperwork right up from the start. And you know, it's too late in 15 years' time to go back and fix the paperwork that wasn't done correctly at the start of the loan. So get the right advice, get people who actually know what they're doing in this space to do your documentation. So you have an extra solicitor who prepares all the LRBA documents yep. for you. Yep. You don't use online providers. No. Do you know if you looked into it or you just... Oh, no, we, have, we just use a... a um, well-known and a solicitor that we know is, is high quality for all of our superannuation documentation, our trustees, our corporate trustees, our LRBAs, or if we're doing a change of trustee, all of those things because we know that their documentation is first rate. We can ring them and ask them questions at any time. So often happens is, you know, a client will ring up or come and see us and say, this is what I'm thinking of doing. I'm doing, thinking of buying this property and doing this borrowing, blah, blah, blah. And often the next piece we will do is we will be on the phone to our solicitors and saying, this is what the client wants to do. This is what we believe needs to happen. We just want to confirm from a legal perspective that it satisfies the criteria, what paperwork needs to be put in place. So we get that support and advice as well as the documentation. Whereas you know, for me online, if I was just ordering it, then that puts it all back on me to say, well, is this right? Have we set this up correctly? And it's it's a really big legal structure when you do an LRBA. It's yeah. it's yeah. it's too important to get it wrong. And, you know, that's then all part of the upfront conversation you have with your client. Well, this is the process, this is the structure, this is the cost to put it in place. But doing it right is going to make a heck of a lot of difference. Yes. Mm. And you, you use class for all your SMSFs, correct? Correct. Okay. Yes. And then how does the um, exchange and management of all those documents work? Do you have a document storage management system that, that you have integrated with class? Or how does the document management connect with your actual accounting and administration within class? Uh, it's that, well, that's probably not a site I'm really close to, to be brutally honest. We're improving our document management storage all the time. We keep, in, if they're legal type documents like trustees and, and LRBA, bear trusts and whatnot, well, we will always maintain the originals of those because they may, may be required. 
we would also scan and save soft copies of all of those and then information from that would be then loaded across into class. Yes. But, yeah, you're probably asking the wrong person yes. that question, but to be maintaining, honest. But maintaining a hard copy of all deeds and SMSF deeds, that, that is a big undertaking. Do you store that on-site or do you have it stored off-site? Oh, a bit of both. But, I mean, you know, our document storage, if I went back, you know, 10 years it has reduced enormously. Yes. So we used to keep hard copies of all year files as well and everything yes. else. Now but it's now just the trust. It's deeds. really just what we call the permanent file documentation. So because, you know, there will be times where you will be asked for the original deed. You know, we'll have a stand, scanned copy, we'll have a certified copy, we'll have whatever, but there is requirements at times that the uh, original deed needs to be cited. So you actually have to keep those things. But, yeah, we have reduced... Where we don't need to keep something, we will scan, save it electronically. But where we do, we, we keep the hard copies. Mm. But, yeah, it's not, you know, it, it, it's a lot less than what it used to be. Quick question off the topic. Signatures that are not about the trust deed, do you do those electronically? We're moving to that, yeah. We're actually moving to an electronic signatory piece. So it's a bit of a work in progress at the yeah. moment. Yeah. But, I, but I think at the moment it's not directly, it doesn't come through class, does it? No. It would have to take an outside provider like yeah. DocuSign, DocuSign yeah. and then yeah. um, connect it with yes. the class. Yeah, but I, I, you know, my personal opinion is that's the future because it's all about ease and, you know, dealing with people no matter where you're sitting. If you're sitting in Perth, you can deal with someone in Sydney. Well, it's Yeah, so it's definitely the way of the future and then it's just dealing with the circumstances where that may not satisfy what's required. Looking back at the seven safe harbour rules, which one causes the greatest issue? I think they all have their potential risks. I guess maybe I'll go the other way. The term of the loan one, I think once you've set it up, is probably the easiest one because it's it's, it's locked in place. But, you know, the LVR would be one that I could see being a problem if the value of the asset changed yes. because the LVR you have to constantly monitor correct the payment of interests and principal you have to constantly monitor and I think can you imagine the loan agreement is also the easiest because again once it's done it's done yeah and it, as long as you're then making sure you follow it so yeah you think of the things you put in place at the start where well, you're going to put the term in place you're going to put the registered mortgage in place and you're going to put the written loan agreement in place so they're you know probably there and they're locked and loaded as long as they're done correctly from the start. The personal guarantee is not required, so it's sort of parked to the side. So you probably your moving feasts in there are your interest rate that you need to monitor, your LVR around the value of your asset, and then ensuring that your monthly repayments of principal and interest are going to ensure that you remain within your LVR and you're satisfying your interest requirements. So those three are actually linked together. And it might, you know, you may need to increase the amount of your monthly repayment to satisfy the interest changes or the LVR movement. One thing you mentioned at the very start, which had, hadn't entered my yeah. mind, which I think is very interesting, and that is don't have the SMSF borrow from the bank have another entity like a trading company or another entity borrow from the bank and then that entity provides the LRBA to the SMSF. Yeah, I actually have seen that happen in one occasion. Now, I wasn't involved directly in the transaction. I came in at the back end to put the documentation in place for the LRBA. So I guess my 
disclaimer on that would be, you know, what conversations do you have to have with your bank to let them know that you're actually on lending that to your SMSF? So, you know, there'd be those pieces as well that I wouldn't have the clarity of. But I actually have seen it happen where, yeah, the bank said, yep, we'll lend it to you. And obviously they took security over whatever they want and they put their term repayment terms in place and whatever and and then the money was then used to on-lend to the super fund. I don't think that would be something that would happen every day but it definitely can happen or has happened, whether it would still happen now. This would be going back maybe four or five years ago that this one mm. was put in place. It's a good option that mm. I hadn't At least to of. consider and yeah. say, right, would that work? Maybe it doesn't but it's worth asking the question. Last question. You mentioned that recently you've done two related party LRBAs. Yes. How many bank LRBAs are standing against it? So I'm I'm just curious to see what, what, what the ratio is. Like? What the ratio is. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think of the clients I deal with. You know, we might have 15 to 20 LRBAs on the books over, and they might be in, have been in place for a number of years or in the last 12 months. So they're not. I'm not seeing the numbers are huge. We get quite a few inquiries as to, oh, I've heard I can borrow in my super fund. But when you actually start to work through the detail, it's not what they thought it was. So the drop-off yeah. ratio is quite high. Yeah, because it's not what they thought it was. It doesn't tick the box of what they want to do. It's too hard, too complicated, too costly. That's a good thing. If people can get themselves educated and say, yep, this is something that works for me, then that I think that's exactly how LRBAs should work. You read, I read a lot of information and, you know, I get the feeling that LRBAs aren't liked very much by, you know, the legislators, if you like. But what I see on the ground in, in the clients I deal with, they're, they're used the right way and they're used effectively. And if they are, they can be really positive for the clients and their self-managed super funds. That's already a very good ending word. Yeah. But I just wanted to come back to the 15 LRBAs that you have on, on the books at the moment, just for yeah. your clients. Two of those are non-bank? Yes. Okay. So 13 are bank and two are non-bank. Yeah, that, there's a rough look. Up, yeah. yeah I know, it I'm, might be 18 I've yeah, got or yeah, whatever. Yeah, but yeah, don't hold you to it. Two, no, no, no. Thankfully. Um, <laughs> yeah, there's, there's two that I'm aware of that we've had the involvement of related parties. In yes. The, in and the, the bank ones are probably older and were established before the Royal Commission. Uh, no, not necessarily. We're oh, still okay. doing them. And when I say bank, they're not. Your big four, because yes. the big four aren't doing them anymore. Yeah. They're finance institutions is maybe yes. the better way to put it yeah. because there's non-bank financiers who are still doing them and so we're still seeing those come through on a, you know, not every day but a yeah. fairly consistent basis. But that is very interesting. That means even though the big banks pulled out, most of the LRBAs at the moment are still not related party but are... Fiat, well, that's Fiat what I'm saying, houses. but I'm, I'm yes, only a small drop in the ocean. Yeah. I know, I know. But yeah. still, it's interesting yeah. to just see that that is your experience because I thought I thought that bank, and this bank, I mean non-financier, yeah. yeah. whatever it is, that bank LRBAs are completely out of the window. Yeah. No, no, no. no longer no. there and it's all, non, it's all related party. But so my impression actually is wrong. At yeah. least you're one case yeah. where this is not correct. Yeah, and, and look, you know, I talk to, say, financiers or finance brokers or people who look for these loans for clients, and I've actually said a similar thing to them, you know, almost like, oh, these LRBAs are dead in the water. Are we? Is it even worth sort of thinking about them? 
And the people that are in the industry and experience know what they're doing. So, no, you can still get them. It's just you've got to know who to, to talk to, what information to provide, probably understanding from the outset is your client a real candidate for this type of a thing because they have to meet the criteria that the banks want. Otherwise, they are going to say no. But that's no different now. I think it's becoming harder and harder to get lending full stop, particularly post the Royal Commission. So it's no surprise that that rolls across into the LRBA market because it's always been seen as that, you know, higher level of risk because of the fact you can only take security against that particular asset. You can't get anything else to put in a security. My experience would be they're still there, they're still available, they still fit for some people but you've got to make sure that you're doing your background work. So practical compliance guidelines, or in short PCG, so PCG 2016-5 is where you find the LRBA safe harbour rules. The safe harbour rules only apply to property as well as listed shares and units and only if your interest rate, term of loan, LVR, security, repayments and documentation fall within the rules. Different topic. SMSF Association National Conference, they really need a shorter name. This is a bit of a mouthful. They need something like Zerocon or Class Connect, something easy to remember. Maybe Sank, like I sank that ship. Yeah, SANC. I think SANC would be good. SANC, eye-opening, really helpful. Some sessions got really technical, so they lost me a couple of times, but I'm sure you got it. My highlight, my highlights. The specialist session with Bryce Figur of DBA Lawyers, amazing, misleadingly titled, can you run a business in an SMSF? And of course, you know, the answer is yes. And so the title sounded a bit lame and boring, but the real topic of the presentation was Can you do property development within an SMSF? And of course, you know that the answer is yes as well, but there are so many pitfalls, so many things that can go wrong, tons of court cases, all highly relevant. Why make a mistake again if somebody else already made it? Bryce touched on material plus contracts, on 1322C unit trusts, geared or non-geared, on joint ventures. Really helpful. I will meet with Bryce soon and then we will go through this again. On the second day, Meg Heffron rocked the hall as usual, this time about contributions, and as usual, she killed off the blokes. And then I went to the workshop about death with Lee Menzel of Heffron, dealing with death. What happens to the SMSF when somebody dies, which is actually not as straightforward as I thought. So we will delve into this more as well in the future. So those were my top three highlights. Of course, there was more. Some news. Senator, the Honorable Jane Hume, and here comes a mouthful. She is the Assistant Minister for Superannuation, Financial Services and Financial Technology. The Honorable Jane Hume commented on four things you heard about at Budget Night, and you're probably wondering whether they are still in the pipeline or not. And the answer is yes, those four things are still coming. They are number one, increase from four to six members, still committed, still coming. Number two, Moving the work test from 65 to 67, so members aged 65 and 66 don't need to satisfy the work test. Still committed, still coming. Number three, as you know, when members are 100% in pension but have a TSB over 1.6 million, at the moment they need an actual certificate, which is really a fertile exercise because they're 100% in pension. 
the government is still committed to removing this need for an actual certificate. So that is good news. And then number four, this gets a bit technical and I never really understood this. When a fund is 100% in pension for some part of the year and then mixed with some accumulations thrown in in other parts of the year, at the moment you need a separate actuarial certificate for each of these different periods. And the government is still committed to changing this so that just one actuarial certificate is required to cover the entire year. One thing the Honorable Jane Hume didn't mention is the three-year audit cycle. So that seems to be off the table for now. So those were current news from the conference, which I hereby baptize as SANC. Great conference. And I also learned a lot from talking to others. The next big event on the horizon is the Tech Summit in Sydney at the ICC from the 11th to the 13th of March. I'm excited about that. I will see Bob Deutsch next week. And I really want to ask him about the Tech Summit, among other things, of course. In the next episode, episode 224, Cassie Evans will talk about SMSFs in general. When do they make sense and when not? Until then, thank you for listening and thank you to class for their support. Bye for now and see you in the next episode.